Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. So I imagine that as you watch that short little intro video, you're probably thinking that today is about fulfillment. Seems a reasonable conclusion. And if you're thinking that, you would be correct. Today is absolutely about fulfillment. In fact, this whole week is about fulfillment. And I want to start by just reminding you of what you just heard to really encourage you to participate in the whole week. This is Holy Week, and it's Holy Week because it's the, the Passion Week, the last week of Christ's life here on earth uh, in his state of humility before he goes to the cross for us. And there's great significance in everything he does from what we look at today throughout the week, Wednesday with the Passover, and Thursday with Monday, Thursday, and Friday, our Good Friday services, and of course Sunday resurrection. So I want to encourage you to not just come here and come on on Sunday again, but to partake in the other services to see the work that Jesus does and see all that the significance that's applying to that. I want to encourage you to be a part of that. In terms of fulfillment for today, and by the way, all of this is about fulfillment, and we want to recognize that that fulfillment is really cause for celebration for us It's something to rejoice over for those who belong to Jesus. Him coming in fulfillment of the scriptures and all that he does is cause for celebration, yes? I've trained the people that come here regularly, but the new ones aren't, so let's try that again. Yes, like this is a celebratory day, right? Because we're celebrating what Christ has done. And so let's just take a few moments to think about how that specifically applies to Palm Sunday. And I actually want to do it really broadly for the week, but particularly for Palm Sunday right now, by asking this question. Why did Jesus come? Why did he come to us? And if I could just ask you to forget (laughs) what I just said, I'd ask you the question without that. Because right now you're thinking, well, obviously he came to fulfill Scripture because we just talked about all of that, and I just said that plainly. And yes, of course he came to fulfill Scripture. That's absolutely true. But if you didn't have that lead, you might say something like, well, he came to go to the cross. He came to die for us. And yes, of course that would be absolutely true too. But if that were the only thing that he came to do, he could have come as an adult and gone straight to the cross. But of course, that's not what happened. He instead came to us in in much the same way that we do, conceived in his mother's womb. Now, not exactly the same, of course, conceived by the Spirit, so his deity is declared in that, but born fully human to live as we do. He had parents, Mary, his biological mother, and Joseph, his legal father. He had siblings, relationships, friendships, He experienced the full range of human emotion. He knew hunger and thirst. He knew tiredness and pain. He knew loneliness and sorrow and even betrayal. He was, in fact, completely human. And he was so in a very, very broken world without sinning, not even once. Which, of course, is essential to his mission, is it not? And why it is that Satan labored so hard to try to get him to sin even just once. 
He called disciples. He taught. He preached. He healed. He cast out demons. He raised people from the dead. And he even exercised his divine power and authority over the creation itself. And all of those things together, all of those actions drew all kinds of attention from all kinds of people, some of it good and some of it not so good. And for those who were troubled by Jesus' actions, his claims, his works and words, those who feared his power and authority, well, they, they largely consisted in the religious leadership of the, of the Jews, and they were largely concentrated in Jerusalem, which is exactly where we are this morning in our passage where Jesus enters into, listen to these words from Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11, commonly referred to as the triumphal entry. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna! To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we do each week, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have brought this to us. We pray, Lord, now that you would bless our time in it you would guide us in it by your spirit. Be with us in that. May you be worshipped as we apply our hearts and our minds to consider your word. And we pray this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. So, we ask the question, and I'll ask it again. Why did Jesus come? Yes, he came to die, but he also came to live, as I've labored to make the point, to live a perfect life of perfect obedience to God's perfect law and to show us the love of God towards all people, towards, towards his people in particular. And like any mission, planning was necessary. Planning was required. Eternal planning and even some planning in time. And, and this final act of Jesus that we're coming up to in his state of humiliation, that is, his death on the cross required some other things to happen, many other things to happen, things that happened long before creation, things that happened in his ministry, and things that happened days in advance. And particularly those things are what we're looking at now. The first of those things is what we see in our verses, namely Jesus entering into Jerusalem. This is the start of Holy Week. Now, this part of the plan finds its significance not merely in the fact that he enters the city, but in the manner in which 
he enters the city, in the manner in which he enters Jerusalem. I have here a sort of a modern-day depiction of what it probably looked like. I imagine that some of you are familiar with the phrase, making an entrance. How many of you have ever said that? Like, you know, we know a person, we say, well, they like to make an entrance, right? That's, why do we say that? We say that, well, because, you know, that person is fond of attention. They kind of like the spotlight, as it were. And, of course, we would be quick to say that's not who Jesus is, and we'd be right to make that distinction. But he most certainly made an entrance, a grand entrance, I might say, but not one that was purposed in its ability to draw attention, though in part he knew it would and it needed to. But instead his entrance declared several profound truths, both about Jesus and about us. Jesus enters Jerusalem in a manner that fulfills prophecy and simultaneously makes a profound and rather public, not to mention deeply controversial statement. I want to begin with Jesus' entrance in Jerusalem in fulfillment of prophecy. That's what we talked about. And that's what we're going to do. Each of the Gospels does this, by the way. Each of the Gospels connects the words and the works, the claims of Jesus to Old Testament texts, to the Scriptures as fulfillment of them. Each of the four Gospels recognizes that Jesus is the promised Messiah in fulfillment of the scriptures, but Matthew's gospel probably does it more. It does, definitely does it more. There's more times where we see it. In fact, we get it right away in the birth narratives, this telling of Jesus' birth, which you, get, which you get great detail of in Luke's gospel and here in Matthew's gospel. We get a long genealogy, and in the first two chapters, we get that genealogy, and we get no less than five prophetic references to Jesus as promised Messiah in the opening chapters. And the trend continues, by the way, as we're introduced to John the Baptist in chapter 3. And so by the time we get to our text, which is chapter 21, we're kind of used to Matthew practicing tying Jesus' words and works to prophetic fulfillment. And so we read these words. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you. So they're, they're there in front of Jerusalem. And immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and will send them at once. So what we see here is that Jesus gives instructions to the disciples. He's telling them what to do in order to do what? Matthew tells us, does he not? This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Read that pretty plainly, and that's stated for us. And so the question of fulfillment is probably the easiest one to answer. It's plain. Matthew just spells it out for us. This, came, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. But I also said that the manner in which Jesus entered Jerusalem is significant. How is that? Well, Matthew again tells us, but he does so by his citing of Old Testament prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. That's our call to worship. And here's what he says, say to the daughter of Zion, and I just want to stop right here for a moment and make an observation. In Scripture, particularly in the prophets, the use of daughter is particularly geared towards city or people. 
Uh, we see that throughout the prophets, negatively with the, the daughter of Egypt or the daughters of Babylon, and positively with the daughters of God's people, Jerusalem, particularly of Zion, and Zion is, is uh, here, Jerusalem. And so what I, what, what I stop to, to do is to say, the idea of daughter of Zion speaks to a people, a city, a kingdom, and what do kingdoms need? Kings, Right? Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. And yes, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden, contrasted with the picture that we see in Revelation when Jesus comes again, uh, mighty and sovereign on a war horse. But here's what we get here. Matthew is telling us that Jesus is entering into Jerusalem as Israel's rightful king, their true king. That's what we take from this. But I also said that this was a very public, profound, and controversial thing to do. It's clearly public because this is the time in Israel's year when Passover is happening. Passover is days away, and so we have, we have people from all around the region that have traveled, and travel is laborious in the ancient world, and so they would travel uh, to Israel for Passover. They would stay until Pentecost, which is why we saw so many people when Peter preaches at Pentecost, because they're from all around. But it's a busy time in Jerusalem's calendar. Passover is busy, so it's a bustling about city people everywhere, preparing for Passover. So it's very, very public. It's also very profound and that Jesus had been, up until this point, very, very careful about his public appearances. He, he made them, of course, but he was careful. And so this public appearance is profound in that here Jesus is entering into the city as the rightful king, which is also why it's very, very controversial, I might even add, even dangerous. Why? Well, because Israel already had a king. A, a king that was, well, not very popular, not very liked, a king who was feared. One that the religious leaders catered to so as to maintain their lesser positions of power and authority which makes the context of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem at this time, a very, very politically tense environment. And Jesus is fully aware of this as he enters into the city. He knows what he's entering into. He knows what he's doing. And so he says, I am the rightful king. And essentially what Jesus is doing is laying down the gauntlet, if you will, before Herod, which is definitely a dangerous thing to do. And the imagery of kingship is not only seen here in Matthew, not only seen by the prophet Zechariah, which Matthew labors to cite, but there is still another precedent in Scripture. Where we read of a king of Israel being anointed as king. His name was Jehu. We read about him in 2 Kings 9. And in short, he's anointed as king. And we read there these words, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king of Israel. Then, in haste, every man of them took his garment and placed it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. You see, the people knew what was going on here. Not just in the prophecy fulfilled of a king riding humbly on a donkey, but in the laying down of their garments and of the branches 
they are fully declaring Jesus is the rightful king. We see that in these verses here. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them, and most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road under the feet of the donkey, just like with Jehu. Branches of trees, they cut, others cut branches of trees and spread them on the road. And so it's, un, it, it's inescapable here. Jesus' kingship is clear, very, very clear, which makes this definitely a public, profound, controversial, and as I said, even dangerous act of Jesus. And even though this very public and dangerous declaration solidifies the intentions of his enemies, which is to kill him, Jesus is inescapably, sovereignly, prophetically, providentially their eternal, right, true king. His throne shall last forever, and the actions of his enemies are sovereignly used by God to bring fulfillment to his kingdom. But you remember that I also said that Jesus' entrance in Jerusalem tells us a lot about Jesus, namely that he's the one true king, perfect and righteous, eternal, but it also tells us a lot about us. We get that from our last verses right here. The crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth, Nazareth of Galilee. Now, the first thing I want to point out to you in these verses is that there is still further undoubted recognition of Jesus as king. Yeah, I'm going to go back to that for a second because that's here in the verses because they're calling him the son of David in the line of the king. In fact, this is something that's not new in chapter 21. They've been doing that since chapter 9 of the Gospel of Matthew. So again, it's inescapable. They know what this means, and they are publicly siding with him, which is kind of the first thing that we want to notice about us. It is common in sermons on this passage in particular to note the fickle nature of the crowd who cries out to Jesus as their king to save them, the very meaning of the word Hosanna, by the way, and only days later to cry out for his crucifixion. However, it's rather important to note that these are most likely two different crowds. This is an interesting little piece of information that we don't often take into account here. It's likely that it's Galileans here with Jesus entering the city and Judeans before Pilate calling for his crucifixion. So it's probably not the same crowd turning on Jesus quite that quickly, which is what we're used to thinking. But nonetheless, people, and Christians being no exception, are fickle, which means that, they, that the comparison can still grant some value but I want to draw your attention to one very, very insightful thing that we, the people, the crowd, actually do here in this text. We want to recognize not only his kingship, but his power that comes with that kingship to do what? To deliver us. To save us. Because that's their cry. That's their cry, and it ought to be our cry as well. It's the very nature of our relationship with God, by the way, right? He's creator, and we're creatures. He's perfect and self-sustaining, and we're needy. 
They cry Hosanna, which means save us. It means deliver us. In essence, it means help us. And to cry out to God for help is the fundamental nature of true, genuine prayer. That's what prayer is. God, help me. Somebody can say amen to that because that's what it is. That is an acknowledgement of our great need of who God is. Help us, save us, deliver us. And so today, I want to ask you to, to not only see Jesus as, as your rightful king, and let's just pause for a moment and say, that's challenging to do here in our context in America. We don't think in terms of kingship. We don't, we don't have a king. We have a democracy, as it were, and everybody uh, has their own rights and independence. And we don't think in terms of the kingdom that way as our uh, subservience and our loyalty to our king. But he, in fact, is our true right king, perfect and benevolent. But he's also your rightful and righteous deliverer, the only one that can save you. Prayer is, in fact, a gift from God. And I imagine that if you're honest, each one of you who's here today can probably think of something that you need help with, that you need saving from right now. Shall I pause and give you a moment to come up with one? Two, three, twelve? Yeah, right? That's what it is to be human and to, to struggle. And here's something interesting to note. The people in the crowd were crying out to be saved from the political turmoil of their context, the fear that they had of both Herod and their religious leaders. And Jesus does come to save them. He is their rightful king, but he doesn't save them from that. He saves them from something far, far worse. So what I want to charge you, to challenge you, encourage you to do today is to cry out to Jesus in prayer to save you. Even if you're asking to be saved from one thing and he intends to save you from something else, from the one thing that is your true enemy, the thing that keeps you from right standing before God. Jesus came to live perfectly for us and to die for us, he did so to deliver us, to save us from our own sin, which makes us guilty before God. But he also did it to demonstrate the perfect love of God for his people, whom he desires to call his own, not simply to save us from our sins, but also to deliver us to him as his bride, as his people. And so cry out to Jesus today, even now. I would encourage you, join us through the week to consider more deeply exactly what Jesus does in fulfillment of the Scriptures to deliver us to him. I want to close our time by asking uh, that we would join together in a short and simple prayer. I'm going to call it a Hosanna prayer. But I want to begin by making an observation. I imagine that if you're new here or if you haven't been here for a while, you're, you're coming to celebrate Palm Sunday. Maybe you're hoping to collect a palm branch. They're yours, by the way. Take them where you know we're going to have a pile of them downstairs. Take the palm branches. Let them be a reminder of the significance and importance of this week in fulfillment of the Scriptures. Maybe you had come expecting that you would shout Hosanna in the highest Anybody come hoping for that? 
You want to shout Hosanna right now? Somebody say Hosanna. Hosanna, right? It doesn't matter what you came here for, though. Because God has sovereignly brought us all together either way for us to be here now so that we could pray this prayer together. And so I want to put this prayer up in front of us. So let's pray this prayer. And let me, let, me, let me remind you, that prayer is the beginning of opportunities to pray. If you see over there, we have a little sign that says prayer. And there's a circle of chairs. We encourage you to participate in that. Fill out one of those cards. Let us pray for you. That's our privilege and our delight. That's who we are as a church. Join us in that. And notice that uh, in this prayer, I have uh, the English meanings for the word Hosanna sort of highlighted. And so it's just a a lead-in for us to think about how it is that we cry out to God for help, which is what it is to be a praying people. Help us, God. Let's pray this together. Lord, we ask that you would move in us to cry out to you to save us. Lord, help us with our struggles at work and with difficult and even painful relationships. Restore them for your glory. Deliver us from the heartache of betrayal and from the shame of our failures. Assure in us that through faith alone we can take comfort, that you delight to restore us, to make us new, and that when you have finished your work in us, we will be with you where you are. Help us, save us, deliver us, O God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.